Well, good morning. My name is Steve Gibson. I'm the executive pastor here at Calvary Church. No, I'm not new. I've been here for a number of years. They've just never let me preach before. Just last week, an elder said to me, Steve, periodically people ask why you don't preach on Sunday morning. And I said, well, have them come this Sunday. They're going to find out. No, it's a privilege to open God's word with you. I want to start my sermon by telling you a story about a gentleman named Tom. Tom has been a member of our uh, congregation uh, for a long time now. But like everyone else, Tom had a life before Christ, a life like most of us in which he made bad decisions. Tom found himself struggling with the abuse of alcohol. And one day uh, he was struggling so bad with alcohol that he was tempted to go back. And I want to tell you that story. Things seemed to go well for Tom. He was walking with God. One day he was at his work and his, uh, his uh, boss called him in the office and he said, Tom, you know how economic times are and we're going to have to downsize. He said, I'm sorry, but somebody has to go. Tom said that day changed his life. He had worked for that employer for 35 years. Can you imagine the hurt he experienced? Tom said that started a season in his life of great discouragement, a season of depression. And he began finding himself hearing that old familiar voice, Tom, remember how I make you feel. Oh, just a few drinks won't hurt you, Tom. And Tom realized that the temptation was so bad that he needed help. So he got on Calvary's website and he found out that at the Yellow House where we have our pastoral care offices, he found out that on a Thursday night they were going to hold a meeting for people uh, who needed help with addictions. So at that Thursday night, Tom drove over to the Yellow House and he went up to the door and the door was locked. The lights were out. He thought to himself, well, perhaps they've changed the meeting place to the main building here. So he came over here and he said he walked around, he asked people, he looked in classrooms, he couldn't find anything. He left very discouraged and he sat in his car in the parking lot and he prayed this prayer to God. He said, God, I'm going to go over to the yellow house one more time and if no one's there, I'm going straight to the liquor store. You see, Tom was facing a situation that James talks about in the first chapter of the book of James, that when we're going through a difficult season in life, a trial in life, Satan often takes the opportunity to kick us when we're down. Satan will often whisper in our ears and tempt us to sin when we're going through trials of life because he knows we're most vulnerable. You see, everybody has their certain weaknesses. Tom's is alcohol. Some people struggle with lying or cheating or pornography or bursts of, uh, of anger. Whatever it might be, the list is infinite really. But Satan knows us and he knows how to best, most likely, get us to succumb to the temptation of sin. In the first chapter of the book of James, James gives us four things he'd like us to remember. When we're going through those trials of life and Satan's whispering in our ears and he's trying to get us to fall back into sin. Before we delve into God's word, let, let me open us up in prayer. Father God, you know I am but a mortal man seeking to proclaim your word. And you know unless the spirit does it in and through me, I will fail. 
So Father God, I pray, Lord, that every word I say would be the words that you pick and that truth would permeate into the hearts of everyone here, including myself, that we might live for you in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to follow along, it's in page uh, 854 in your pew Bibles. The first 12 verses of the first chapter of James, James is explaining that God actually coordinates, orchestrates us to go through trials and difficulties in life, that it's actually his will that we go through trials. Look at verse 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What James is saying is that God uses trials in life to mold us and to make us in the image of his son. That it's God's will that we have difficulty in life in order, just as the illustration as a skit, Vernon was doing the skit, in order that he chisels us and molds us and makes us who he wants us to be. And then starting in verse 13, he's going to give you four things that he wants you to remember when you're facing those times of trial and when you're tempted to bail by falling into sin. The first thing he wants you to remember is he wants you to remember that when you're tempted, that the temptation is not from God. Look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. What James is saying is that never, ever will God tempt you to sin. You see, James understands that temptations and trials from a human perspective, can be very similar. They're both hard to endure. Both at times are hard to appropriately respond to. But what James wants you to understand is even though from a human perspective that temptations and trials sometimes feel the same, from God's perspective, they're very, very different. That the trials of life are a tool of God to mold us and to make us, while temptations to sin is a tool of Satan to destroy us. He goes on and he writes, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, not only can God not tempt you to sin, God is not even tempted to tempt you to sin. God and sin are like oil and water. They don't mix. Never ever will there be a time in your life where God would desire that you sin. Never. Where does temptations come from? He goes on in verse 14. He said, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. If you remember, when we do baptisms, we always ask the person that's being baptized, do you renounce Satan, this world, and your own evil desires? The reason we do that is because from Scripture, uh, Scripture positions that sin comes from three different ways, the world, Satan, or our own evil desires. But really, they're all intertwined in some regards. Because like I said earlier, Satan knows our individual weaknesses. So he knows what's in us. He knows the evil tendencies that we have. And so he'll whisper in our ear and he'll remind us of how we feel when we're doing those sins. He'll remind us of the fun of sin. Because sin can be fun. 
But James is picking this terminology and he's choosing to focus on the sin that's within us because he wants you to understand that this side of eternity, you will never be perfect. You will always have, you will always have to choose between right and wrong. Even the Apostle Paul, throughout his epistles, but specifically in Romans 7, he says, I battle daily. There is a war that goes on in me daily. I have to choose to do right, even though I have a desire deep within me at times to do wrong. And James wants you to recognize when you hear that voice that it's not God who's tempting you, but rather it's your own evil desire. The second point that James wants to get across is that we are to fear death because death will always lead to some form of spiritual, I'm sorry, we are to fear sin because, death, because sin will always lead to some form of spiritual death. He's going to use two analogies to explain this. Look at the words dragged away and enticed. Those two terms in the Greek are fishing terms. Now, when we think of first century fishing, we think of them casting the net in the, into the water and pulling up the fish, right? We also know from a single verse in Matthew 17, verse 27, that they fished also like we do with a single line. What James is saying is just as a fisherman puts a, hit, a, a hook on the end of a string, puts bait on it and casts it out to entice the fish to bite it, so it is with Satan that Satan he takes a hook and he puts the type of bait that he knows that we will most likely succumb to, most likely be enticed with, and he'll put it on the end of the hook and he'll cast it out and he'll try to get us to take it. My daughter and I, my oldest daughter, Grace and I, uh, last Saturday, we went up to the Pier Marquette River. We were going to try to catch some salmon. Uh, as most of you know, salmon this time of year, it's, they're leaving the big pond and they're going upstream into the streams and the rivers and they're on a mission. They're on a mission both to die themselves, uh, but also to lay eggs in the gravel bottom in order that the process of new life can start again. My daughter Grace and I were going up there to stop them in their mission, at least try, very unsuccessfully by the way. When you and I were born, we were born into a cesspool of sin. God in his graciousness came along and saw us in our depravity, picked us up and put us in streams of living water. And he gave us a mission, a mission to die to ourselves in order that we could resurrect to new life. Satan hates it and he'll do everything he can to destroy it, to stop you in the mission. And what James is saying here, don't take the bait, fear sin because it leads to death. He wants to hammer this point across, so he gives us another analogy. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Here he's using the process of human development. He's saying just as a baby is conceived in his mother's womb, just as the process of natural life starts and he grows and he's born and then he grows to adulthood and he eventually dies, he's saying, that's what takes place. When you bite into the hook, a process happens that naturally takes a life of its own on and left unchecked will destroy you. It's cancerous. Cancer left unchecked will destroy you and ultimately lead to physical death. And James is saying, this is what sin does to you, spiritually death. And at times, 
even physically, physical death. He then writes in verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. This phrase, don't be deceived, my dear brothers, is used four times in the New Testament. And all four times, the author is warning you against the propensity that we have or the tendency that we have, especially in times of trials, to forget how deadly sin is. You see, when Tom's sitting in his car, what's going on in, his, in, in the spiritual realm is Tom's fighting with the enemy who's saying, look, Tom, you're here at church. No one's here. By the way, can I say, Tom must have been early because our staff's always on time. <laughs> Where are you, God? I'm here doing, I'm, I, I'm doing my part. Aren't you doing your part? Aren't your people supposed to be at church? And he begins to rationalize, well, maybe, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe, maybe just once. Asaph was the worship leader for the children of Israel during both uh, the times of King David and King Solomon. And he wrote the 73rd Psalms after going through a trial of life and he's facing this disillusionment. His spiritual eyes are becoming blurry and he's beginning to doubt the negative effects of sin. And watch what he says here. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Surely in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, all these years I've led these folks in worship. All these years I've sought to follow your decrees. All these years I've sought to please you. And I look around me and the people that could care less about you or your decrees are throwing a party while I'm miserable. What's going on, God? Maybe I do have it wrong. But then he says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Asaph got into the presence of God and God so kindly wiped and cleaned his spiritual eyes and he realized the wicked's road always, always, always leads to death. James is now going to complete focusing on sin and the evil nature of sin. And he wants to now give you two more points to remember by focusing on the goodness and righteousness of God. And his third point he wants to explain is that when you're going through a trial in life, God is with you and he will see you through. Look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. See, not only is the trial that you are going through in life actually a gift from God, even though it doesn't feel like it. During the trial, God will give you gifts to see you through. Some of my most memorable times with my Savior, some of the sweetest moments I've had with my Lord is when I'm going through a trial in life and I feel as if I'm almost going to fall off the cliff. 
and he whispers in my ear, I'm with you. I've got you covered. Don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. Several years ago, I had some disappointments in life, and I listened to Satan whisper in my ear for two weeks. Steve, what are you doing in the ministry? Go back to the business world. Did you hear God right? Would it, be, would it really be this difficult? You didn't have these problems there. Steve, give up. You're not gifted enough for this. You don't have what it takes to build his kingdom. I woke up one morning with those thoughts and I was so depressed. I didn't want to get out of bed. And I remember saying softly, God, where are you? And as clear as if you would have stood by my bedside and said to me audibly, I heard in my spirit him say, I will be your peace in the middle of this storm. I jumped out of bed and I said, Satan, I'm not listening to this anymore. God says he's with me. And if he's with me, it doesn't, I don't care if you and all your demons and everybody in this world is against me. God's with me and he's stronger. And he'll see me through. You see, that's why it's so important when you're going through a trial to continuously press into God. Satan will try to isolate you. Because see, while at times God does speak to us like he does on an individual basis, like he did in my bed that morning, most of the time he speaks through the preaching of his word. Most of the time God speaks to us through the fellowship of the saints, through corporate worship, through somebody coming alongside you and putting their arm around you at church and saying, hey brother, I know you're going through a tough time. I want you to know I'm praying for you. Brother, I don't know what's going on. Sister, I don't know what's going on, but if you want to share, I'm always available for you. Those are the gifts of God. Those are the times that God is letting you know, and James wants you to remember that he's with you and he's going to see you through. He then tells us about the greatest gift that he has ever given us. Verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. He chose you. He chose me. He saw us in our depravity one day and he said, hey, come here. You're mine. I'm going to work on you. I'm going to mold you. I'm going to make you. You see, I'm not talking about loss of salvation here. If you're truly a born-again Christian, believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is John, in John 6, passages of scriptures in John 6. This is what John says regarding his mission. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to the will, do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall will have eternal life. And I will, I shall raise him up on the last day. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, my, will, my Father's will is I don't lose any of you. And I'm going to please my Father's will. And I'm going to give him what he wants. And I'm not losing you. And I'm going to work on you and work on you and work on you and perfect you until you get it. You see, part of the problem is many Christians, including myself at times, we bail out. We take the bait. We get out of the trial the easy way. And we miss what God's trying to do. And God has to do it over and over again. Some people live their lives like this. 
Some Christians have to go through trial after trial after trial until God gets it in their heads. J.R. Clinton is an author. He's a Christian author. He writes mostly about leadership, servant leadership. This is what he says about this idea of Christian maturity, particularly in developing leaders. God uses testing experiences to develop the character. A proper godly response allows a leader to learn the fundamental lessons God wants to teach. If the person doesn't learn, he will usually be tested again in the same areas. You should recognize that God is continually developing you over a lifetime. His top priority is to conform you in the image of Christ. His top priority is to conform you in the image of Christ. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. God's top priority is not your happiness. It's not your comfort. His top priority is to mold you and make you. And James is saying the very thing that he uses is the difficulties and the trials in life to do that. Let him do it. Satan hates it and he'll try to destroy what God's trying to do. But don't take the bait. Let God do his work in and through you. I don't mean to be insensitive. Some of you are here this morning and you're going through trials that I can't even imagine going through. I know it's tough. I know it's hard. I know it's excruciating. But God's word says he will always, always be with us. One of my favorite poems is by an unknown author. She writes this about her feelings and what God does to mature her. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, she says, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God knows, God knows what he's doing. Trust him. What's he doing? The final thing that James wants you to remember is found in the last part of the verse of 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that for the purpose that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. <clears throat> first fruits is referencing uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system. Under the Old Testament, God required that we bring him the first crop, the first increase, the firstborn. Without getting into it, it basically means the best. God wanted the best when we sacrificed to him. In Revelation 19, John sees a vision of a future day when God the Father presents his son, his bride. And his bride is made up of you and me and every believer throughout history. Let's read that, Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for our God almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. You see, there's an eternal purpose for the trials of this life. God is molding and making us in order that he can present to his son his bride, his reward. And God the Father is not going to give his son second best. This life is but a testing time. It's a preparation time. We're getting ready for a marriage to be presented to our Lord and Savior as his reward. So James says, when you're going through a trial of life, there's four things to remember. Remember that when you're being tempted to sin, it's not God who tempts you. Remember to fear sin because it will always, always, at some level, lead to spiritual death. Remember that God is with you and he'll see you through it. And finally, remember, there is an eternal purpose for the trial of which you face, a glorious eternal purpose. Tom sat in his car and he said, God, I'm going over to the yellow house one more time. And if no one's there, I'm going straight to the liquor store. Tom, would you please come up and tell us what happens next? Hi, I'm Tom. When I got to the yellow house, the lights were indeed on. My plans to use the money to go to the liquor store were put on hold. Inside, I was greeted warmly by those who were there for the Abundant Life meeting. I realized everyone there was battling a battle. They were all different battles, but the one thing they all had in common was not being obedient to God. I wished I could tell you that the Lord met me halfway and cured all my problems, but I can't. The truth is, my Lord had to pursue me relentlessly. In my temptations and failures, I spoke a lot of prayers toward God, but did little listening. Little listening to Him, my godly family, and other people around me. But God is kind, gentle, loving, and forgiving, and He has taught me to listen to listen to him through his word, through my wife, family, and godly friends. He has circled me with help I didn't know existed. I had to move from trusting myself to cure my problems, to trusting Jesus to make my decisions for me every day, to realize that the bottle of alcohol got me only more pain, and that obedience to Jesus has returned the trust of my wife and family. It is scary to let Jesus make my decisions for me daily, but it's turning out beautifully. It's nice to have my children say, it's good to have you back, Dad. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Tom, how long has it been since you drank? Over two years. Amen. Praise God. He's stronger. God is stronger, isn't he? He certainly is. He never promised us a victory without a fight, but he always promised that he'd show up just in time.